The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Okay, thank you everyone. Welcome and good morning to all of you in this room and to all of you in ACB and out of ACB, wherever you might be listening. This is Jeff Tom. I am an ACB board member, as well as the chair of the ACB Advocacy Steering Committee. And I will introduce my co-facilitator in just a second. But first, a very important item, and that is I'm going to turn it over to our host, Jeanette, to uh, let you know the CEU code, the opening CEU code. So, Jeanette. Good morning. I will repeat the CEU codes twice. Slowly, six, six, zero, nine, four. Again, six, six, zero, nine, four. Okay, thank you very much. So, those of you who attended the panel on the difficult council of line yesterday know that. In my overblown way, I refer a lot to the universe and galaxy, but today we really have a star-studded panel for you, and uh, it is led off by our stellar uh, Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, my co-facilitator for the next two sessions, Clark Graxfall. So, Clark, I'm going to have you introduce the panel. Here, here he is. Hey, Jeff. Thank you so much, and hello, everyone. This is Clark Rockfall the Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind, based out of our national office in Alexandria, Virginia. And thank you to everyone for being here with us in person, as well as our attendees and distinguished panelists that are joining us over Zoom. So this morning's session is entitled Update on legal issues impacting people who are blind and low vision. Uh, so what does that mean? You know, at ACB, I, I just came from our life members breakfast and uh, for all the people in the room sharing why, why they became a life member, why ACB is so important to them. And in the, the top three reasons, uh, advocacy was, was always mentioned. It was often mentioned, you know, advocacy and family or family and advocacy. Um, but advocacy is at the core of what ACB as an organization does. And it's at the core of who all of us are within the American Council of the Blind. Uh, so that's why uh, Jeff and our Advocacy Steering Committee and Services Committee thought that this conversation was, was so important to the organization, and that's why we reached out to some of our great partners in the disability rights space to share uh, the work that they are doing and some of the, the overarching trends and themes that are currently in the legal landscape as it pertains to the rights of people who are blind and low vision. Uh, so at, at this time, I will I'll call upon our panelists uh, to do a, a brief introduction 
uh, for a brief self-introduction. And we'll first go to disability rights advocates and Stuart Seaborn. I'll turn it over to you. Good morning, all. Uh, and I was actually just in Chicago yesterday, and the, so I feel like I just missed you all in person. Happy to be here uh, virtually. I'm, I'm, we're going to talk about a case in Indiana today. I'm in the, the Hoosier State as we speak. Uh, I'm with Disability Rights Advocates. We're a nonprofit nationwide disability rights legal center. We do high impact litigation on several, just about all areas of aspects of life for the disability community. We are cross disability. We do a lot of cases on behalf of the blind and low vision uh, community, but we're cross disability. I think the one common thread with disability rights advocates work is the high impact nature. So it, it often entails class actions or cases involving policy changes at a broad or kind of big, uh, big picture. We, we like to refer to it as bang for your buck uh, approach. Um, and we have worked uh, over the years, I can't even count the number of times with ACB. Uh, we're, we're always happy to work with ACB. Some of the cases we're gonna talk about today involve ACB. Uh, we have Rosie Bichelle, one of our stellar uh, staff attorneys who has significant expertise in the area of accessibility and voting and has worked with ACB on multiple cases. Rosie's going to talk about that today. I am going to share a little bit uh, about some of the APS work. There is, there's a whole, I, I believe, a whole session going on on accessible pedestrian signals uh, concurrently, so I'm not going to give as much detail as them. But I think there are a couple key points uh, from the recent victory in Chicago, I think, that are worth mentioning for this group. And then some of the pitfalls and hurdles of recent litigation uh, that that uh, a, some some of, of which ACB is involved in around kiosks, uh, and then some uh, in in the uh, Southern California area uh, around um, access to a community college that has impacts. I think for all of us that do this advocacy work uh, in in the future. So I'll turn it over to Rosie for a brief introduction, uh, and then to um, the other panelists. Hi, everyone. This is Rosie Bichelle. As Stuart said, I am a staff attorney at DRA. Um, I believe he covered most of the, the introduction uh, required for, for DRA and for uh, me. But as he said, I will be speaking a bit about some um, voting access cases that have involved ACB and uh, or state affiliates. Um, and so before I do that, I will pass it over to the rest of the panelists to introduce themselves. And thank you, Rosie. And thank you, Stuart. Uh, at this point, I would like to turn to uh, Andre Gallegos to introduce himself. Thank you and, and good morning. My name is Andres Gallegos. Uh, I'm presently the chairman of the National Council on Disability. Uh, I am also uh, a, a civil rights attorney uh, in Chicago with the law firm of Hughes, Sokol, Piers, Resnick, and Dim. I direct our law firm's disability rights practice, which is a national disability rights practice. And we represent people of all categories of disabilities nationwide. We also strive to uh, undertake systemic litigation and high impact litigation uh, and are heavily involved in uh, municipal access, civic access cases, uh, improving uh, public rights of way uh, for people uh, with mobility disabilities and those uh, who are blind and low vision. Um, I'm gonna talk a little bit about some of the work that National Council on Disability uh, is doing in the areas of, of employment, uh, addressing the lack of digital technologies in school settings, uh, healthcare access, uh, not only to 
hospitals and doctor's offices and telehealth, but also a policy report we have uh, are now uh, looking at for clinical trials and ensuring that people across all categories of disabilities, particularly those who are blind and with low vision, are involved in clinical trials as well. Thank you. Thank you, Andres. And has our final panelist, uh, Michael Nunez, has he is he on the on the webinar? No, sir. Okay. Thank you. Um, so, it, as folks can tell, we have folks. Our, our panel is made up of folks who are very active in the disability rights space, who are great partners of ACB at the national level with our affiliates, as well as with our members, and bring a very uh, wide spread uh, level of expertise to this issue. Um, so at this point, I'll turn it back over to, uh, to Stuart and Rosie to share uh, examples of some of those uh, disability rights litigation efforts that they've worked with um, alongside ACB. And, I, uh, and just one quick point here, I love how Stuart said, you know, impact litigation. Um, you know, that's, that's certainly something that ACB as an organization at the national level that we try to do when getting involved with legal advocacy efforts as well, right? Um, there's, there's any number of accessibility barriers um, that people who are blind and low vision encounter on a daily basis. But as an organization, we really need to, to focus our efforts. So it's, as Stuart said, so that we can get the, the bang for the buck, right? Um, so that's, that's really our focus at the national level. And certainly our affiliates take a similar approach, but at the state level. So with 66 state and special interest affiliates, they're more able to focus in their areas of expertise, whether it's uh, regarding the special interest affiliate, it's regarding a state affiliate, uh, they're able to tackle those issues uh, more effectively than we are at the national organization. But everything that's done at the state level uh, or even the local chapter level, as some of these cases will involve, then has a much broader impact of not only the local population of people who are blind and people with disabilities, but then that then sets precedent that can be used on a national level as well. So Stuart, I'll turn it back over to you. So I'm going to turn it over for the moment uh, to Rosie, who's done uh, an amazing kind of body of work around accessible absentee voting across the country. I think Rosie is going to talk about two cases specifically involving ACB affiliates in North Carolina and Indiana. But Rosie, I will turn it over to you. Thanks so much, Stuart. This is Rosie. Um, all right. So, um, and thank you, Clark, for, for the introduction and explanation of, of um, kind of the impact work that our organization and that ACB is so dedicated to advancing. Um, so diving right in, um, over the last several years, there's been a movement to push for increasing the accessibility of vote by mail or absentee voting um, across the country, really. Um, and, and that has been in no small part uh, due to a lot of advocacy by the American Council of the Blind, um, the National Federation of the Blind, and some uh, many of their affiliates. Um, as Stuart mentioned, as part of that movement, we at DRA have worked on several voting access cases, and two of which I'm going to talk about today that have resulted 
in some kind of um, accessible uh, 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 accessible absentee ballots, um, uh, increasing accessibility of the entire absentee and or vote by mail process for voters with print disabilities, which um, includes those with, with vision disabilities and those with disabilities affecting manual dexterity. So starting off, um, I'm gonna discuss our case in North Carolina, um, which is the, the first uh, one of these cases that we worked on. Um, so in early summer of 2020, um, DRA was contacted by um, an AC, the ACB state affiliate in North Carolina, um, as well as several other North Carolina voters um, due to the inaccessibility of the then paper-based uh, absentee uh, voting system, which forced voters um, with print disabilities in the state to rely on a sighted assistant to complete their ballot. Um, this meant two things really. One, um, well, it meant many things, but the two, the two main issues here that um, voters then had to, to, had to have a sighted assistant available to them. Um, and then, Two, they'd had to give up their right to a secret ballot if they wanted to vote absentee. Um, voters in the state had been concerned with the lack of accessible of an accessible mechanism for absentee voting for, for quite a while since the, the paper-based uh, ballot system had been around for, um, for many years. Um, however, as you can imagine with the timing of the 2020 election, um, Voters were especially concerned in light of the added risk of in-person voting during the COVID pandemic. Um, another factor in North Carolina was that at the time, the state was already using uh, what was a at already a fully accessible um, electronic uh, ballot system and with including accessible electronic ballot return, but only for voters with um, uh, overseas, voters who are overseas or voters in the military for the state. Um, so in July of 2020, we, we filed a suit um, asking that that system that was already available to some voters in the state um, be extended to voters with print disabilities um, so that they, would, they might be able to have a uh, accessible uh, mechanism for voting absentee without having to, to give up the right to a secret ballot. Um, in late September of 2020, um, which I don't I imagine I have to remind you all was not too long before the uh, general election, um, we received a court order requ requiring the state to allow voters with print disabilities to use the accessible electronic system for that November 2020 election. Um, so that was the first election where, where voters in the state were able to, to use the accessible electronic mechanism for voting. And then in June of 2021, um, the, the court issued a decision that officially found that North Carolina's paper only absentee voting system denied blind voters the opportunity to cast an absentee ballot privately and independently in violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Rehabilitation Act, um, our two main uh, federal laws dealing with the rights of people with disabilities. Um, that June 2021 uh, order made the, the relief that had been granted voters temporarily for November of 2020 permanent. Um, and so uh, now um, voters in the state uh, in North Carolina may, um, uh, for, for all foreseeable elections, may request, receive, mark, and return their ballots electronically and accessibly using their own devices and assistive technology. 
Um, and I'm gonna, I can talk through a little bit uh, the, the steps that that voters in that state um, would have to go through for that for that process. So, um, voters request accessible electronic ballots via a, an online absentee ballot portal. Then, um, once they receive a confirmation email, they return to the portal to to mark the ballot electronically via that accessible portal. Um, when they're done marking, they provide a digital signature, which can include a type signature. Um, and then uh, another feature of voting in North Carolina is for, for absentee voting in North Carolina is that they require um, two witnesses for absentee uh, voters. Um, but that uh, the, so witnesses also have to, to, to sign the uh, sort of attestation, but um, that system has now been made uh, accessible as well. So, so witnesses um, may, may sign uh, via type signature um, and then they, the voters would submit the, the completed ballot via the portal and um, receive a confirmation screen. Um, Stuart, I see that you are unmuting, so I imagine you have something you'd like to add. Oh, just, just on North, North Carolina, and Rosie, this is something that um, I think some folks may know and, and you may be getting to, but this, this was kind of the perfect case or even like the perfect storm for the idea of having accessible abs absentee voting, both with uh, the ability to mark ballots, but also to return them electronically, given the factors that Rosie mentioned. I think it's important for folks at, at ACB and elsewhere to understand um, the idea that, that we're kind of struggling with constantly as to you know, what, what's the best place, what's the best way to, to identify an issue to bring uh, and, and, and at the right time. Here you had this massive general election that Rosie mentioned in 2020. You also had uh, the pandemic that had really kind of forced the entire country to rethink in-person voting, at, at least at that time. And there was a real concern, as Rosie mentioned, about you know going going in person, having to be uh, particularly you know in terms of, of being able to to get people to really kind of understand and and, and appreciate the facts that, you know, that had the judge knowing that you had to be led around and, uh, you know, very tight space with the, with uh, with who knows what in the air at the time of pretty intense um, scrutiny around healthcare practices and, and COVID, uh, making for quite, uh, quite good timing. And the other point that Rosie mentioned that I just want to reiterate is that North Carolina at the time had both um, uh, uh, overseas and military voters through its UACAVA system, already able to use um, an electronic system. So it helped to bring those in. So in addition to using kind of the, the prior precedent, there was this kind of perfect storm uh, that, that Rosie and the team were able to kind of capture. And it's, 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 it's wonderful because then we can use that precedent where it may, you know, may, may not quite be such a perfect storm. And I think Rosie's going to talk about another situation, maybe, maybe a little bit on the Further down the scale towards, uh, you know, towards things that are are, are more complicated, um, but to use those precedents in other places. Uh, but but as as a starting point, start where there's, you know, the, the factors indicate that you could get a good precedent and take that precedent on the road. Pardon me, I just want to let you know that your other panelist is now in the room. Oh, fabulous! Thank you so much. And Michael, can you hear us? Yes, I can. I'm sorry. Computer wasn't connecting, so I ended up joining by my iPhone. Not a problem. Thank you so much for making it, and uh, we'll we'll come to you uh, for an introduction here just in a moment, um, and we'll let uh, Rosie and Stuart wrap up uh, this section on voting, if that's okay. 
Sounds great. All right. And uh, Stuart and Rosie, thank you for that, that overview of North Carolina. The other thing that I'd like to point out is that uh, North Carolina is in a federal court circuit that also includes West Virginia that had uh, not through, fortunately, not legal advocacy, but had already statewide adopted an electronic voting system for people with disabilities um, in early in 2020, even before the pandemic. So I, I think that that's a consideration as well when you have a state that is already rolling out this technology and then you get to the factors that, uh, that Rosie mentioned and Stuart just underscored that this accessible system was already being used for a different group of voters within the state of North Carolina. And I'll turn it back over to Rosie. Thanks so much, Clark. Um, yeah, so to reiterate what Stuart has said, the the North Carolina case really was um, kind of a, a perfect um, mix of factors that, that led to uh, a landmark decision allowing the fully accessible electronic um, process for absentee voting in that state. Um, after the success in that state, um, we uh, were contacted by um, the Indiana ACB affiliate um, seeking to kind of bring a similar suit to address barriers to absentee voting in that state. Um, and um, as Stuart hinted, Indiana was in ways a bit uh, more complicated and perhaps not quite the same set of perfect combination of factors. But but um, but when we uh, filed suit in the case, um, something that was really uh, particularly bad about Indiana is that it was um, not only was the absentee voting system completely paper-based, um, but uh, voters for whom the paper ballots were inaccessible didn't even have the option to choose who would assist them in marking their ballots. Um, instead, uh, Indiana state law required that voters requested what was called a traveling board, which is um, uh, two volunteers, typically strangers um, from their county elections agency. Um, and the traveling board would come to their home and assist them in marking their ballots. Um, but Indiana's uh, this kind of traveling board uh, structure and insistence on use of traveling boards for and paper-based ballots um, for, for voters in the state made it one of the most restrictive absentee voting regimes in the country for people with print disabilities at the time. Um, and I, I don't imagine I have to explain this all to you, but I will just to be perfectly clear here that the, the traveling board was rooted in some um, in some discriminatory concepts of people with disabilities, um, including the the thinking that that people with disabilities would never leave their county, and and one, I mean, this is because the traveling boards would never go outside of their the the counties that they were um, located in. Um, so you can imagine that that um, kind of highlights. Uh, I mean, it caused a lot of issues for for voters who were actually voting from outside. Much, I mean, outside the state outside, uh, much less outside of the county, um, it meant that, that folks would be um, often deprived of a of, of vote um, uh, because they, they had no means to, 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 to vote accessibly. Um, meanwhile, um, kind of similar to North Carolina, um, voters in overseas and military voters in the state had access to uh, email and fax based uh, return of absentee ballots. Um, they could 
receive their ballots um, over email or fax um, and then mark them and then return them um, remotely that way. So we filed a case challenging Indiana's absentee voting regime in December of 2020, um, asking that voters with print disabilities be given access to electronic voting and, um, and accessible return, um, much like the, or using kind of the same structures of the, the military and overseas voters. Um, and we also asked that the traveling board no longer be mandatory, um, but rather for, for voters who still wish to mark a paper ballot, um, uh, allowing them to, to choose an assistant of their choice. Um, so the court issued two orders in, um, in the ACB of Indiana's favor for elections in May and November of 2022. And they um, officially, the court officially found that the traveling board was discriminatory against voters with disabilities. Um, and then in January of this year, we, we reached a settlement agreement with the state, um, which uh, as a result of the settlement agreement, um, resolving the case, the, the state agreed to acquire a um, new remote accessible ballot marking tool um, that would allow voters in the state to cast their absentee ballots privately and independently. Um, so Indiana voters were had access to that system for the first time in a, in the May 2023 um, elect, uh, primary elections, um, and so voters were able to request their ballots via um, similar to North Carolina via an Indiana voter portal online, um, and then receive and mark their ballots electronically using their own assistive technology and their own devices um, using that that uh, electronic system. Um, one nuanced difference is that in Indiana, rather than returning ballots via the the, the same portal, um, once the ballot once the ballots are marked, then voters uh, would submit them or, or can submit them by email or fax. But there is not that portal return option. But it is still um, a uh, uh, a more accessible and independent mechanism for for voters to um, return their ballots. Um, and then as for the traveling board, um, the settlement agreement allowed the traveling board to remain permissive instead of mandatory um, through the May 2023 election, and then um, also required the state agencies to, um, to encourage the legislature to amend the traveling board statutes for, the future, for future elections. Um, so to, to kind of conclude and tie things up here, we continue to receive outreach from voters in other states with inaccessible absentee voting systems. Um, and we continue to evaluate possible advocacy strategies elsewhere where needed. So um, I'll just put in a plug now to please feel free to reach out to us at DRA if you would like to discuss barriers to accessible voting in your state. Um, as, as I believe has been made clear, we've had the pleasure of working with the ACB and many affiliates on, on these cases and many others. And it's always, um, it's always a pleasure to, I mean, it's not a pleasure to, to learn about more barriers, but it's always, uh, it's, it's great to be able to, to work with, um, with you all uh, to address these kinds of barriers. So thank you. Uh, and, and I know a lot of folks uh, are working in a variety of states. This is Stuart again. Uh, I know Rosie and the team and, and the affiliate in California uh, are working, uh, hopefully, on uh, a, a solution that may or may not involve litigation, and we will keep folks in the loop uh, on that. Certainly uh, helps to be able to say to folks in California that West Virginia was far ahead of them in terms of uh, accessible ballot marking and return. Uh, hopefully, that, hopefully that'll help. 
Um, so Clark, I don't know if you wanted to introduce Mike or if you want me to continue with a couple updates, I'm happy to do either. Sure, I'll, I'll quickly ask our, uh, our fourth panelist, Michael Nunez, to uh, give a, a brief introduction of himself and, and the work that he does before coming back to uh, your last couple of updates there, Stuart. Hi, everybody. This is Michael Nunez. So I'm an attorney. I'm senior counsel at Rosenbeam, Galvin and Grunfeld. It's a, it's a law firm in San Francisco, um, and we handle a variety of different types of litigation, including um, a good amount of civil rights litigation, including ADA work and um, advocacy on behalf of people with disabilities in all contexts. Um, I work a great deal on our cases against the California state uh, regarding the access to um, mental health treatment for people with mental health disabilities and access to accommodations for people with a variety of sensory and physical and learning disabilities in the prison system as well, including um, several hundred people who are blind or low vision. Um, so that is um, kind of the stuff that I work on at this, this point, as well as outside the prison context, I also work on um, various ADA and disability rights cases, including access to um, healthcare for people with disabilities, as well as other programs and services for people with disabilities. And I've been with the firm for about eight years. And before that, I worked at Disability Rights Advocates in Berkeley with um, Stuart and all the others that um, ACB, I'm sure, is very familiar with. Thank you, Michael. All right. Thank you. Stuart. So I'm going to touch on, this is Stuart again, I'm going to touch on a few cases very briefly that uh, may have an impact on all of our advocacy, including the advocacy at ACB. Um, I know a lot of you are familiar with the APS decision in New York City, the two APS decisions. Uh, I'm going to ask if we have any representatives uh, from the American Council of the Blind Metropolitan Chicago here, uh, who've done great work in Chicago that I'm going to talk about shortly. Uh, not hearing anyone here in the room, but we are going head-to-head -head with the APS session from the Transportation and Pedestrian Environmental Access Committees. Yes, I was partially afraid of that, um, <laughs> but th there has been great work, and I, I wanted to point out a couple of differences. So the New York decision, and I have to say that the advocacy done by the ACB in New York uh, is some of the best I have seen, kind of puts the uh, APS world on the map in terms of finding that there is a denial of meaningful access to uh, a public entity's, um, what we call the pedestrian right-of-way system uh, when it comes to APS in New York City. In, in Chicago, um, the, the ACB team at uh, Metropolitan Chicago has gone further. And I, ask, I wanna ask the, the group, how many of you know the term effective communication? We've got some applause in the room here. Okay. What about the term auxiliary aids? Yeah, definite applause. Okay. So I, I think in the world of advocacy around pedestrian routes, pedestrian signals, the concept of auxiliary aids and effective communication has really never been brought to light uh, around APS. And 
I'd, I'd like to ask folks if you can think of how APS could be considered an auxiliary aid for people with, with vision disabilities. Well, I suppose since nobody's going to take the plunge, uh, I, I will do that. I've been known to do that before. Um, it, it, I suppose it would be a supplement to listening to the traffic itself. And certainly that would be an auxiliary aid in that, in that sense. Yes. And so um, for years, we've worked on the concept of auxiliary aids in places like hospitals, education, uh, things like uh, access for screen readers, um, for folks who have hearing impairments, access to captions and uh, ASL interpreting. Uh, this is the first time that I am aware of that the concept of effective communication for people with sensory disabilities and um, auxiliary aids has been applied to pedestrian routes at all. And one of the benefits of that is that um, in much of our work around physical access, construction, access to pedestrian routes, the idea of what could be an undue burden or fundamental alteration is often tied to the technical feasibility or infeasibility. Uh, oftentimes, um, the, um, the contracting process, we have several cases involving access to pedestrian routes through curb ramps and sidewalk improvements. And uh, we have the hurdle thrown at us. It's almost like a gauntlet of uh, construction issues, um, feasibility issues, um, even things like contracting coming up. And the, the court, uh, through the work of the Council of the Blind and DRA uh, in Chicago, uh, in addition to finding, like the New York City system, that there was a denial of meaningful access for folks uh, with vision disabilities to the pedestrian route program, here really focusing on the benefit being access to signalized intersections and the safety of those signal, signalized intersections for members of the public uh, here, including people with vision disabilities. Now the court has extended that to say that in addition to violating the meaningful access principles of the ADA in section 504, the effective communication principles are violated and the, the barriers in terms of possible defenses that can be raised by a public entity such as the city of Chicago uh, are going to be much harder for those public entities uh, because the, uh, unlike the technical infeasibility components uh, that are associated with meaningful access um, and uh, pedestrian routes in general, oftentimes the courts are really looking at finances when it comes to auxiliary aids and effective communication. So having this idea that the um, access to the pedestrian routes uh, can be a, uh, achieved as, a, as not just a reasonable modification, uh, but within the concept of meaningful access and reasonable modifications and auxiliary aid or, or essentially a vehicle for effective communication for people uh, who are blind or low vision, uh, in our mind, makes it a little bit easier to challenge some of those defenses that come up. Uh, Chicago had the benefits, um, as, as we're talking about with North Carolina, of having pretty horrific facts. Um, I don't know, Andres, you live in Chicago. I'm not sure uh, if folks um, folks in the council were, were very quick to point out that um, despite the fact that APS has been around for ages, uh, the city of Chicago, even given the current plans that were in existence, 
at the time of the filing had less than 1% of its signalized intersections uh, having uh, APS, and the plans that were in existence didn't, didn't have much more accounted for, at least in the next five years. So that certainly is a, is a situation where you have good facts making good law, and uh, that allowed, I think, uh, the, the flexibility for us as DRA, as well as the Justice Department, who was uh, intervening in the case to say, you know, in addition to the fact that there are significant barriers denying folks meaningful access to the pedestrian routes and to the, the intersections that the city, you know, by, by virtue of actually having a signal installed there, had deemed were, you know, were unsafe enough to require some sort of, of, of vigilance uh, in the means of signalized intersections, that that, that uh, you know, kind of crossing that hurdle or getting over that hurdle from uh, a meaningful access violation to uh, not only meaningful access, but also a requirement for the effective communication principles, I think will help us as we push for a remedy. And those of you who followed the New York litigation uh, closely, and I think a lot of folks at ACB uh, have followed this, um, given that the remedy came so much longer after the order on liability, you will know that there is a significant um, uh, impetus in the order to, to get work done within the first 10 years of that order in New York City. The only problem, and I wanna make sure that folks at ACB are aware of this, is that we were not able to secure uh, a, a kind of written finding in that order requiring APS at every single signalized intersection. So in New York City, you have a situation where the, the, the city's gonna front load the work over the first 10 years of the injunction to get to uh, as close to uh, having all signalized intersections with APS as possible. I think they have to get to approximately 70% um, in the first 10 years. And then it's it's up to the city to then come back to the court and say, uh, you know, we're doing enough, whether through this installation, uh, this series of installations or new technology to have um, provided or be, be in the process of providing meaningful access to people with disabilities to our signalized intersections and our pedestrian routes. What we are Stuart, hoping- Stuart, that is an extremely informative um, explication of how the, the decision really you know, brought the ball down the court. Could we, for the sake of time, come back to you in a few minutes and then- Certainly. Uh, go to the other panelists. Thank you very much, appreciate that. Yeah, so let's go to, well, go ahead. Oh, sure. I guess uh, before transitioning to, to Andres to hear about some of the, the work um, that he and his firm are a part of and would like to highlight. Stuart, you mentioned the Department of Justice intervening in the Chicago accessible pedestrian signal case. And the, the Department of Justice has also uh, intervened in the accessible kiosk litigation that ACB is a part of with LabCorp. Um, how important is that in disability rights litigations to have uh, the support of the Department of Justice? So I think one of the, the reasons in Chicago that the, uh, first of all, the judge uh, was so quick um, to issue an order both on meaningful access and on effective communication is the fact that the, uh, the Justice Department had intervened now, it, 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 I, I want to be clear that DRA was the, the, and the ACB were those pushing for the effective communica communication piece of it. Uh, DOJ stuck to its meaningful access 
uh, on on its end. Um, I think both uh, the fact that they were involved and the egregious facts, as I mentioned, uh, less than 1% installation at the time the complaint was filed helped uh, kind of push it over the edge. But I can tell you, um, and, and LabCorp in particular, given that LabCorp is now in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and there is a risk in that case, and that's one of the things I wanted to mention, uh, that um, you know that we've taken the concept for granted uh, for the last you know thirty years, even even before the passage of the ADA, with some of the cases um, under the, the Rehab Act, that the um, the idea of being discriminated against, the concept of being denied access to something, or even deterred from accessing something where you know there's a barrier, that idea of discrimination is an actual harm for purposes of liability for purposes of a common barrier uh, facing people at class certification. And all of that is under threat uh, with the appeal of the excellent uh, decisions that ACB and its council achieved in LabCorp, particularly on class certification, essentially finding that that, that discrimination, the, the lack of access to these check-in kiosks for people who are blind or low vision, regardless of what other issues they're facing in the context of trying to access LabCorp's programs and services, that those um, those barriers, that the idea that, that somebody is denied access, that there is discrimination, that is a sufficient harm, both to show commonality for purposes of class certification, but also to show an actual injury. And that is, is going up to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, there's a great team from uh, ACB, uh, Matt Handley and his team, also DRA, DREDF, a whole bunch of others have submitted uh, amicus work around it to preserve the idea that that discrimination itself is an injury. And our hopes are, given the fact that the DOJ is involved in the case, uh, that both in the underlying litigation, but also uh, on the appeal, that ACB and, and its counsel will, will be. Will thank you, Stuart. And I'd also like to point out that a big thank you to our partners in the, the blindness community at National Federation of the Blind, American Foundation for the Blind, and the Lighthouse for the Blind of San Francisco all joined in support of that, that amicus brief supporting ACB's position in the, the lab course litigation. All right, at this point, I'd like to turn to uh, Andre Gallegos. Thank you. Um, I want to build a little bit off of what, what Stuart just said with respect to um, the accessible sidewalks and, and APS as well. Um, our, our firm uh, last year, uh, resolved through settlement, a class action litigation that we brought against the city of Pekin, Illinois, which is just um, south of, of Springfield, Illinois, uh, for its inaccessible sidewalks, including uh, the audible pedestrian signals. Um, and in that litigation, uh, not only did we obtain the injunctive relief, but we also uh, had a damages class. And we, we decided to seek damages on behalf of the residents of the city of Pekin, because there was a significant track record that for the past 10 years, they were complaining vociferously to the city to fix these sidewalks um, because they were in so disrepair that it truly precluded many of them, particularly those in wheelchairs and scooters from navigating the sidewalks altogether that they had to take to the streets. And the city just ignored those requests repeatedly. They weren't, in many instances, they wouldn't even investigate when an individual was taken to a hospital because they were injured trying to navigate uh, some of those sidewalks. And so we, we asserted a damages class and, 
and the city agreed to it. Now, mind you, it was a small damages per per individuals, but I think that was significant. And and so when we move forward uh, in the present cases that we're looking at right now, we have a, a case uh, that is pending before, uh, with the city of Lawton, Oklahoma, which is the third largest city in Oklahoma. Uh, it's it's we're we're drafting the the complaint as we speak. If if there's members of ACB that live in Lawton, Oklahoma, or if you know folks uh, that live in Lawton, Oklahoma, I would encourage you to get in touch with us or have have them get in touch with us as well. Uh, here again is a situation where a city has been ignoring uh, the disability community for a number of years, and they're pleased to, number one, obtain sidewalks where there are no sidewalks, and then to fix sidewalks uh, where they are because they're in total disrepair. Um, the city was sued by two individuals uh, back in 2012 uh, to address the sidewalks, and through a settlement, they agreed to create what's called an access board. An access board consists of uh, the ADA coordinator for the city, uh, plus members of disability community and some city officials. And their charge under the settlement agreement was to establish priorities for where sidewalks would be uh, repaired and where they would be um, constructed where there are none presently. Well, in, in Freedom of Information Act requests, we obtained minutes from the Access Board over the years. And what we found is it's truly an ad hoc process for determining where sidewalks to be constructed. Um, and there was uh, an emphasis to dissuade people and organizations from requesting sidewalks, the community at large. Uh, for instance, there was a, um, a, a church within the community that was asking for the construction of a sidewalk from the bus stop that services the church uh, to the church, and it was repeatedly denied. And in the minutes, one of the access board members said, you know, we really need to find a way to, to address this so that other community organizations do not come to us asking for sidewalks or to repair sidewalks. That really struck me, right? Because the, the role of the access board was to ensure that the disability community uh, had input into where uh, pedestrian rights of way and sidewalks are gonna be placed. And that certainly wasn't taking place. And so we're looking closely there and determining whether or not we should also pursue a damages class uh, in that case. Uh, the other case that we're looking at is in the city of Peoria, Illinois, which is close to Pekin. Um, and again, if you have, if you live there or have, have folks, uh, members of ACB that live in that area, we would ask that you you contact us. So, um, so that's the sidewalk cases that that we're involved with. I, I really want to talk for a minute about the work that we're doing at the National Council on Disability. Uh, if you're not familiar with the National Council on Disability, uh, we are uh, a very small independent federal agency. Uh, we are charged under our statute, the Rehabilitation Act, to advise the President, Congress, the President's administration and federal agencies on all policy matters affecting people with disabilities, not only in the country, but uh, in the territories as well. Um, in, uh, 2022, we released our uh, framework to address health disparities uh, for all people with disabilities. It's, it's intended to serve as a blueprint for the federal government in addressing 
and eliminating health disparities uh, for all people with disabilities. Uh, it has uh, 43 specific components, but the core components include uh, designating people with disabilities as a special medically underserved population under the Public Health Services Act. And what this would do, it would incentivize uh, through loan forgiveness physicians to come into the field to focus on uh, care and treatment of people with disabilities specifically, uh, and, and therefore uh, try to address the chronic shortage of primary care providers uh, in general, but specifically those that are, are clinically trained to address the needs of people with disabilities. Uh, it also uh, will entail significant funding through the National Institutes of, of Health for research on specific health disparities affecting people with disabilities. The, the second core component is somewhat similar, but this is designating people with disabilities as a health disparity population under the Minority Health and Health Disparities Research and Education Act. This would incentivize researchers to focus on issues affecting people with disabilities and contributing to their health disparity. And uh, again, through loan forgiveness, it would incentivize researchers to focus on those particular issues and also free up significant uh, federal funding uh, dedicated to research uh, in this particular area. The third core component is to require comprehensive disability clinical care curricula in all United States medical nursing and other healthcare professional schools and requiring disability competency education and training of medical nursing and other healthcare professionals. It is inconceivable and unconscionable that a physician can become board certified basically in any specialty without ever, ever having seen a patient with a disability whatsoever and having not received any academic training on the care and treatment of people with disabilities and trying to address uh, the, the health, our health needs. Uh, this goes beyond what is, what is taught in schools now, and that is a racial cultural competency. It's not enough to train uh, potential physicians and nurses on, on the culture of disability or the culture of any subpopulation of people with disabilities. They must be clinically trained on how to care and how to treat us. And that is something that was recognized back in 2010 when the Affordable Care Act uh, was developed because there's a section 5307 that allows the Secretary for Health and Human Services to fund grants for the development of model curricula uh, to be implemented then in all medical, nursing, and allied health professional schools. Uh, that has never been done. There has never been funding dedicated to the development of this specific curricula. Uh, and we're asking um, the administration and the Secretary of Health and Human Services to fund that. Uh, specifically, we're asking for $35 million uh, in appropriations for grants to be issued uh, in the first year. And that number was derived because it's the same amount of funding that was, um, that was given to uh, Health and Human Services, their Department of Aging to develop model curricula for the care of, of, of seniors in the country in developing that curriculum. Uh, number four, we are asking for um, the adoption and implementation of the US Access Board's 
2017 standards of accessible medical diagnostic equipment into binding regulations uh, under the ADA, uh, under Section 1557 and Section 504. And the great news here that I can share with you is that uh, we have reviewed, the council has reviewed uh, draft regulations uh, multiple times, multiple iterations of those regulations from both uh, Department of Justice and Department of Health and Human Services, Office of Civil Rights. Uh, so those will be uh, coming out uh, soon. They, these are coming out in the form of notice of proposed rulemaking. And I think that the communities can be very pleased, particularly with the, the work that um, the regulations, how they're drafted for Section 504. And then the last thing, uh, the last core component of our framework is on improving data collection concerning healthcare for people with disabilities across the lifespan. Uh, virtually every public health surveillance program that was implemented during COVID excluded people with disabilities. And we know that the pandemic had a disproportionate effect on people with disabilities, particularly people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Uh, but the true uh, the true magnitude in which it has impacted people with disabilities is not truly known um, because the absence of data collection uh, concerning people with disabilities. Uh, it, is, it, it is a shortcoming that's also prevalent uh, in our standard death certificates. So that disability is not captured uh, in the standard death certificates. And that's something that needs to be changed as well, right? Because death certificates are used by public uh, health officials, particular researchers to determine the prevalence of certain conditions, diseases uh, that, that lead to death among uh, various populations. And that is not being done uh, for people with disabilities. Uh, what we're finding though is there's great resistance for the development of, of clinical care curricula in, in medical schools. And that's mainly coming from the single body that is um, charged with developing standards for medical schools and medical school accreditation. And that's the Liaison Council on Medical Education. It's an independent body, um, of, independent of the American Medical Association, uh, but it develops standards for, uh, for medical schools and, and the adoption of specific curricula. Because they're independent, they take guidance from no one. Uh, and the current composition of the council, uh, they do not have anybody um, with a disability lens on the council. And that's something we're imploring them to change, right? If they're not going to take guidance with respect to what standards should be created to uh, develop curricula for people with disabilities in those schools, then you know, at least take guidance with respect to who should be uh, at the table making those decisions. Uh, it's a work on progress. Uh, I can share with you that uh, you may have seen the announcement actually uh, for our council meeting that's gonna take place on July 12, where we're gonna have a series of panels to discuss these issues. And we're gonna have a panel that consists of the CEO of the Joint Commission, the president of the American Medical Association, uh, the president of the American Dental Association, and uh, leader, leaders from uh, the uh, Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education um, 
to talk about these issues. We invited the Liaison Council for Medical Education to join the panel, but they refused uh, the, the invitation. Uh, but we're going to keep trying to, to engage with them. So as a point of advocacy, Clark, I would encourage ACB to communicate with the uh, LCME, the Liaison Committee for Medical Education, uh, imploring them to uh, address the, the gap that currently exists in medical schools uh, relating to um, the absence of, of curricula for the care and treatment of, of people with disabilities. Thank you, Andres. And uh, the member body of ACB in, I see our, it was our board of directors adopted a resolution that was brought forward by our membership in 2021 for uh, disability training for medical personnel and staff to better treat people with disabilities. Um, so we'll certainly follow up with you so that we can share that and add our, add our voice and our advocacy to ensure that people with disabilities are represented in those conversations. All right, at this time, I'd like to turn it over to uh, Michael Nunez uh, to highlight any of the areas of uh, disability rights uh, litigation work that he would like to, to share with our audience. Uh, looking at the time here, uh, we have about 20 minutes left and I, I do wanna make sure, I know I have questions and I, I certainly wanna make sure that I have time for questions, but also that we get to questions. Hey, that folks, that's that's why you're a moderator, right? It's the uh, it, it's the power of holding the microphone. You get to ask the first question, but I know we have some folks here in the room and we likely have questions on Zoom as well. Uh, but at this time, I'll turn it over to Michael. Hi, Clark. Thank you. Um, so first off, I wanted to double check with you. So um, you said we have about 20 minutes left. Would it be best for me to take maybe 10 minutes, eight minutes? What are you thinking? Yeah, 10, 10 minutes is great. Okay, great. Um, that sounds good. So um, like I mentioned before, I'm an attorney at a civil rights law firm in San Francisco, Rosenbein, Galvin and Grunfeld. And today, what I would like to speak with you all about is about my work um, on behalf of advocacy for incarcerated people with vision disabilities. So as I mentioned earlier, I work on a case called Armstrong versus Newsom. And that case is a case challenging pervasive ADA disability access barriers in the California state prison system. We represent a class of several thousand people, including a class of about 280 blind and extremely low vision people, um, as well as a class of people who have vision disabilities that are considered more moderate, people who use are able to utilize vision a little bit more. Um, and that class is also about 280 people. Um, so I think what I wanted to do before I jump into our current advocacy work in that case is give you a little bit of background. First off, um, this case that I mentioned to you, um, it is not new, but our work in the case on behalf of blind and low vision people is constantly evolving and we're constantly kind of trying to advance the ball on that. We filed this case actually when I was in grade school in 1994 and um, we originally litigated the case in the 90s and reached a remedial plan and order in 1998. And so for the past 25 years, the case has been in the remedial process. The case sits here in California in the Northern District. And 
Um, there are a variety of kind of comprehensive agreements that the parties negotiated under kind of the auspices of the court sort of pressing the parties to do so, as well as court orders that govern access. But it, the case really addresses um, access for blind people, access for people with hearing disabilities, access for people with mobility disabilities, as well as access for people with learning disabilities who are incarcerated in the California state prison system. Um, so I think what I'd like to do is tell folks a little bit about sort of daily life for incarcerated people. Um, people do not essentially just sit in their cells all day, at least most people don't. Um, so in, in prison, daily life consists of a variety of programs and activities that incarcerated people can access. Some people have jobs, some people um, have education, so you can earn a GED or an associate's degree or even a college degree, a, a four-year college degree while incarcerated. There are also remedial educational programs. You can have a variety of different jobs. Um, in addition, you have medical appointments that you would go to. Some people who have mental health disabilities receive mental health treatment. Um, there are um, not just um, there are not just jobs, but there are also training programs that some people participate in. And there are self-help programs to help people who have addictions or substance abuse issues. And those, those programs all involve, um, you know, various uh, access issues, including reading, writing, um, and sort of, you know, fundamental issues of actually accessing the space, getting to the space, getting from the space, those sorts of things. Um, so in addition to all of those programs, um, you know, people also get to visit with family members and friends. They get to have phone calls and video calls with family and friends. Um, they get transferred for various reasons from one facility to another. Um, and against that entire backdrop, is a unique set of considerations unique to that incarceral setting of kind of safety and self-reliance and um, sort of accessibility, not just being uh, something that somebody's entitled to under the law, but it can be a real uh, acutely, um, it, it can be a very acutely sort of safety oriented issue because people's safe, because essentially prisons can be a very dangerous place for people. Um, I will say, so just as background um, for folks who aren't familiar, the ADA and the, Ameri uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act and, and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act apply to state prison systems, um, just like they apply to every other component of a state government um, or a local entity. They also apply to jails. Um, so the, um, So basically, these laws protect the rights of all people with disabilities to access you know, programs, services, and activities of any kind in the prison system. I just wanted to move on and tell you all a little bit about the current advocacy that we've been doing in the system, um, in our Armstrong case, on behalf of people who are blind or low vision. So... First off, um, one of the most basic issues is access to cane 
canes and cane instructions. So blind and low vision people in the California state prison system need to be able to move around the facility on their own. They need to be able to get to, you know, uh, appointments. They need to be able to get to classes. They need to be able to get to places, um, what's called the chow hall, like a dining hall, essentially, um, to and from those places, as well as even more basic things like moving around a housing unit to use the restroom or a shower or get to the day room, which is a room that's uh, kind of like a recreation room um, in each housing unit. So um, we've encountered several problems that we've advocated on. Uh, so first off, um, cane size and um, cane instruction are key issues. Many people in prison um, do not start out as blind. There are some people who are blind from the beginning when they are first incarcerated and convicted, but many are not. And so they don't have any way of learning cane skills in the same way that people would in the free world um, from sort of a local service provider like the Lighthouse for the Blind, for example. So um, one of the issues first off is getting access to canes to begin with. In prison, unlike in the real world, uh, physicians need to be able to approve a cane for someone. Um, and we had lots of issues with people getting approved for canes. Secondly, people get provided the wrong size cane. As folks know, cane size, that's a, an appropriate cane size depends on the height of an individual, but many facilities have only had one cane size. So you could, regardless of how tall somebody was, they'd get you know, access to the one size cane, which can be really unsafe for people who are you know, far too tall or far too short for whatever cane ha size happens to be um, on hand. Um, in addition to the cane size issue, cane training has also been an issue. So you know, even if somebody is able to get a cane of the right size, they wouldn't necessarily know how to use it. So we've been advocating on behalf of better access to canes for incarcerated people who are blind and low vision. And the state is uh, poised to roll out or actually has rolled out and is um, potentially in the process of revising uh, you know, cane policy to provide better access to canes, including canes of appropriate size for incarcerated people, as well as providing training to physicians who are charged with the approval of canes um, to people who are blind or low vision. And several of the institutions that house the greatest number of blind and low vision people have been working um, to secure and have secured contracts with third-party service providers um, in California that employ comms instructor, com instructors, um, essentially cane instructors. Um, so that has actually greatly improved access to canes over the past year, which we're really happy about. Another issue that we've been working on has been um, reading and writing accommodations. This is an ongoing process, but as I mentioned earlier, there are lots of different programs that incarcerated people need access to. A lot of them involve paper documentation. Primarily in prison, you work with 
printed documents and not electronic documents. And so we have been in negotiations for the past 10 months to improve access to a variety of more modern auxiliary aids, including video magnifiers, both desktop and handheld, as well as um, accessible word processing through laptops, um, screen readers, as well as scan and read devices such as the Omni Reader by Vespero to dramatically improve access to blind, uh, to reading and writing for blind and low vision people so that they can do it privately and independently as um, in contrast with how things work now, which is limited access to video magnifiers and essentially no access to the printed word um, other than talking books for people who are blind and are not able to use video magnification technology. So we've been working on that. That's an ongoing process, but we've made a lot of progress and we're pretty optimistic that we are in the coming months going to be able to have a really different and much more accessible reading and writing experience for our um, blind and low vision class members in the case. So it's been about 10 minutes, Clark. I have more to say, but I'm going to stop there because um, we have some questions, I'm sure, and I want to make sure we get to those. Yes, th thank you so much, Michael. Uh, I will take the, the opportunity for the first question, and then I will act as a mic runner here in the room to see if we have any questions in the room. And hopefully we have time to take uh, a question from the room as well as a question from Zoom. If there are folks that have additional questions that we do not get to, you can email them to advocacy at acb.org. Again, that's advocacy at acb.org. And we'll be happy to uh, pass those questions along to our panelists. Um, so for the first question, I'll, I'll start with Andres Gallegos, but happy to hear from the rest of the panel as well. And Andres, I also want to give a big thank you to the National Council on Disability for supporting ACB's litigation uh, regarding accessible access to U.S. currency, uh, that work is obviously ongoing, but uh, we are having we are making some great progress with the Bureau of Engraving and Printing and U.S. Treasury for a tactile, uh, tactically accessible as well as better contrast and larger font for the new $10 bill, which is scheduled to be uh, from the scheduled to be delivered from the Bureau of Engraving and Printing to the Federal Reserve by the end of 2026. That's not my question. That was just a, a thank you. My question is, this was a pretty interesting week from the U.S. Supreme Court with decisions uh, regarding uh, affirmative action in education settings and decisions, uh, decision regarding uh, free speech and whether uh, artists have to uh, recognize and uh, serve as customers uh, people with different uh, sexual identities or sexual orientations. Um, so my question is how it, how, if at all, do these decisions uh, potentially impact or uh, signal the, the court's uh, direction on disability rights issues. You know, there, there's oftentimes that there are ADA cases that get close to being referred to the Supreme Court, 
Um, fortunately, that, that has not happened or the court hasn't taken them up in a while. Uh, but just curious to hear your thoughts on the Supreme Court and what potential cases uh, going to the Supreme Court would mean for disability rights uh, today. Um, Clark, th thank you for the question. Um, let me talk about the uh, 303 creative uh, case. And that's the case that you mentioned, Clark, on, on creative design, a website designer, um, because I'm, I'm most familiar with, with that decision. Uh, and, and here, if you're not familiar with the case, there was a, a website, uh, a website and graphic, uh, she's a graphic designer who happens to uh, develop websites uh, and other um, digital content for for people, uh, and she is starting up her business. She she hasn't yet opened her business to the public. But one of the services that she provided is a very customized, personal um, design for for couples that are getting married, and she tells their story in her words and creates, according to her, a personal narratives. Uh, and shares her views on marriage, et cetera, for uh, for these uh, for these customers. And she was concerned that the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, which is a fairly typical act that mirrors the ADA and is in virtually every jurisdiction but five uh, in the country, uh, that says you're not going to discriminate uh, in the provision of goods, services uh, uh, for people. Um, for people with disabilities, for people of color, for age, for gender, sexual preference, et cetera. And she was concerned that the state would uh, require her to provide that very niche customized service uh, for the LGBTQ community when she doesn't believe that that, that marriage uh, is, is that expansive, that it's traditional marriage man, man and woman. And so she filed a lawsuit in anticipating that the state would bring a claim. Uh, and so the court then uh, it made its way up to the Supreme Court. Um, uh, and um, what the court held there is that that, that's that one service, that limited service that she provides, is so creative and so unique that, that they viewed that to be uh, an expression of, of her uh, a, 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 an expression of hers uh, that is covered by the First Amendment. So, excuse um, me, Andres, uh, yep. very quickly, if I could. I'm going to give you one more minute to finish because we want to hear okay. what you think. But before I say that, just a couple things. Uh, we'll give you the ending code in just a minute. But for my panelists who are staying on for the next panel, uh, so far as I know, the link or whoever you got on will be good for that panel as well. So stay on, and if you get kicked off, we'll figure it all out. So I want to get that out of here, out into the air before we go away. Okay, uh, sorry. Uh, back so to yeah, let me just, and I'll, I'll cut to it. So, so the freedom of expression by that by that one service is, is what they ruled on to be uh, constitutionally protected. Um, but the concern that I have in the language is that the decision talks about um, the the benefits of public accommodation laws, but then it also talks about how those public accommodation laws have been expanded in jurisdictions over the years. That's a little bit concerning to me. So it could it be a tell that you know they're they're looking at this particular uh, issue 
uh, and that's problematic. So uh, the Supreme Court and its current composition, in my personal opinion, is something that we have to be concerned about. And we're always vigilant, not only what happens in courts with respect to the ADA and the other statute that protects us, but also what's taking place in the legislature as well. There's always in every session, bills introduced to try to limit the scope and the effect of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that's something that we all have to be concerned about. Pardon me, Jeff. We are completely out of time. There yes, is another presentation I know, I know. in this. So room. I want to thank everyone. Uh, I want to thank Clark. I want to thank our panelists. I want to thank all of you. Uh, and I want to thank uh, Darcy, our streamer, and Jeanette. And I want to turn it over to Jeanette to give us the ending CEU code. I will give the code in one minute. Um, I have been advised that. Um, Clark has the information that all panelists need in an email that was sent to him. And I believe it is actually potentially different from the link you currently have. So great. Thank you for that, Jeanette. Um, so we will get that email out to uh, Andres and Michael and Stuart for the next panel. And with that, I will give the closing code. And once again, I will give it twice. Two, three, two, zero, nine. Two, three, two, zero, nine. Again, th thank you, Jeanette, and thank you to Stuart. Rosie, Michael, and Chairman Gallegos. Uh, folks, sorry we didn't have time to get to questions in Zoom or here in the room, uh, but please, if you have questions for our panel, please email them to advocacy at acb.org.